This is Chattanooga Civics. I'm Nathan Bird. The city of Chattanooga is kicking off its budget writing process for the 2023 fiscal year. I sat down with Brent Goldberg, Chief Financial Officer for the city, to discuss the process the city uses to write its budget, how that process has changed over time, and how citizens can give our input. But first, I'm excited to announce the first ever Chattanooga Civic sponsor, Juicy Rhino. Juicy Rhino is a podcast started right here in Chattanooga, documenting the strange but true story behind all those shady marketing companies that regularly post too good to be true job ads, but never actually mention what it is that they market. Over the course of seven episodes, the podcast unravels the world of multi-level marketing, investigating the cult-like strategies used to recruit and retain new hires, and how the same company sheds its bad reputation and recycles itself over and over. Juicy Rhino is a serious investigation, but it plays like a dark comedy, and it's a blast to listen to. You can find it on all the major podcast platforms. So if you could introduce yourself. Yeah, I'm Brent Goldberg. I'm the city's chief financial officer. And we are kicking off budget season right now. And this is for fiscal year 2023. Can you explain? Or 2023. That's right. Yes. Yeah. Fiscal year. Explain kind of what that means and what those dates are. Yeah. So the city operates on a fiscal year that's different from the calendar year. So our fiscal year starts July 1st each year. So um, we're, we just finished the midway point of fiscal year 22 and at the end of December. So the new fiscal year is uh, July 1st, 2022 through June 30th, 2023. So we are starting the process now to, uh, prepare the budget for fiscal year 23, which starts July 1st. Great. And so I was looking at some of the resources that the city's put online about the new budgeting process. And one thing that stood out to me pretty quickly is that, uh, the budgeting process this year seems to be pretty strongly anchored in the One Chattanooga Strategic Plan. So could you tell us a little bit about that plan, how it's going to be implemented in the process, and how people can find more about that? Yeah, the, so the One Chattanooga uh, Strategic Plan is, it, it, there's been a soft release to the public. It's on the uh, pbb.chattanooga.gov website, and there's some, the mayor has talked about it at city council and some other places, but uh, we had a public unveiling scheduled last uh, for for this week, actually, mm-hmm. and we ended up postponing it because of COVID numbers. Um, so we're going to reschedule that soon. But but essentially, what it is is it's a we call it a strategic plan, but it's not prescriptive. It's mm-hmm. it's meant to be a broad vision. Um, when the mayor put this together, he really wanted to provide a guideline for for the departments to use, and so a broad vision, not prescri- prescriptive. It's meant to change over time. Uh, it includes 11 principles that, that he really cares about. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it also includes seven goals and 40 key priorities. So um, it, it's quite a bit. And you know, it's a 40-page document, quite a bit of information. But it's really meant to spur thinking and create guidelines for the departments. Great. And so you mentioned that uh, acronym PBB a second ago. Uh, pbb.chattanooga.gov is where that strategic plan kind of lives right now and where people can access it. But that outcome is priority-based budgeting, correct? Yes, priority-based budgeting. And so in past years, the city has used budgeting for outcomes, and now we're shifting to priority-based budgeting. Just kind of very briefly in layman's terms, what are the difference between these two systems? Uh, How is it really going to affect how the budget is written and what the kind of final product looks like? Sure. It's so priority-based budgeting is a public sector alternative to zero-based budgeting. So people talk about zero-based budgeting quite a bit in the private sector. Um, it, it is a you know essentially what that means is you start from zero every year and build a budget based on you know that what you want to accomplish for that year. In the public sector, you can't really start from zero. Um, you know, for for us, we can never have zero police officers, or zero firefighters, or zero garbage truck drivers because. Those are, you know, the core services we're expected to provide for taxpayers. Um, just like a school district can't have zero teachers, mm-hmm. right? So the the thought was is to create a public sector budgeting process that simulates zero-based budgeting to get more of the private sector, you know, budgeting techniques involved in the public sector. So 
priority based budgeting is is just that it's an alternative zero based budgeting focused on priorities, uh, focused on investing, uh, investing taxpayer dollars toward those strategic priorities. But also, it's all it's about getting you know the services right, making sure that there's three cr- critical questions we want departments to ask themselves: What do we do? What does it cost? And how well does it align to our strategic plan? And that, that's really uh, part of the key principles of priority-based budgeting. Um, one part of One Chattanooga is uh, one of the seven goals is to have a responsive and effective government. So we'll see a lot of that this year, I think, through the priority-based budgeting process. We really want departments to focus on what they do, doing it really well, making sure we understand what the cost is to do it, being mm-hmm. transparent, and also aligning things with the strategic plan as much as we can. And that may just mean being more responsive and more effective, or it may mean one of the other, you know, key priorities that's listed in the plan. Mm-hmm. So kind of getting further into the details of the budget writing process, the city writes an operating budget and a capital budget. Is that correct? Do I have those terms correct. right? Yeah. So what is the difference between the operating budget and the capital budget? How are they, how is, how are the funds raised and then how is it spent and, you know, what is kind of the demarcation between those two? Yeah. So the, the primary, um, I'll, I'll back up. So, you know, the government's, uh, composed of several different funds mm-hmm. and we can talk, we can get in the weeds on what the different funds are if you want, but, uh, the general fund is the, is the primary fund that is used to provide all the services that people expect. That's where we, we fund everything for, from police and fire to, to public works, to planning, to even agency appropriations, which I'm sure we'll, we'll talk about as well. But uh, the general fund uh, last year for fiscal year 22, the current year that we're in, uh, had a total revenue of $302 million. And that $302 million is made up primarily of property taxes and sales taxes, both state, state our portion of state taxes plus our uh, portion of local sales taxes. So uh, property taxes make up... I had a note here somewhere, 62% of our of our revenue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then state and local sales taxes make up 24%. So 86% of our revenues for general operations come from two sources, property taxes and sales taxes. Um, and then we have other fees and local taxes that make up the rest mm-hmm. and, and grants from the state or federal government sometimes. Um, and then we spend, you know, the, we always have a balanced budget. So if we have $302 million coming in, then we budget to spend that same amount, $302 million. And uh, for fiscal year 22, uh, in this order, police, fire, and public works take up uh, seventy, around 70% of the budget. Those are the largest departments and, and provide most of the services that impact people you mm-hmm. know, on a daily basis. So that is our operating budget. And then capital budget is separate. Um, you know, the funding sources for that are primarily bonds. So, if, you know, when city issues bonds, we, we get that cash up front so we can spend it on large capital projects. Um, and then we repay that over, over a period of years. Then we also get grants, federal and state grants for capital projects. And, and then most years we take some portion of our, um, current year revenue and put that into capital. It's called pay go capital or pay as you go. So we may use that money for, you know, we may move $3 million from operating revenues into a capital project just Mm -hmm. so we can get it done quickly and not, you know, not have to go through the bonding process and everything. So, but the, the capital budget is for everything from paving roads to building sidewalks, building new parks, new playgrounds, so kind of uh, build it and you're done. Yeah, you the one-time away. expenditure type thing, non-recurring. Uh, so that, that's operating capital. And then we also have several other funds that are enterprise funds. The largest that uh, is really, really important, but people don't normally talk about it very much because, you know, it's not as fun to talk about, but the sewer fund. So sewer fund is is half the size of our general operating fund. I mean, it's over $150 million and it's, it's funded. It's called an enterprise fund because it mirrors more like a private enterprise. Um, you know, there's fees that come in from ratepayers that pay mm-hmm. um, sewer fees, and we spend that money on the sewer system to operate the sewer system and also for capital projects. So mm-hmm. that's a big one. We also have an economic development fund and some other smaller funds like hotel motel tax, 
And all of those are very specific revenue sources and very specific uses of those revenues. Right. Uh, so I've got a couple questions. I don't, I, I want to prevent myself from getting too into the weeds on some of these answers, but a couple questions, just to clarify some things, uh, for the operating budget and that revenue that you're talking about coming from sales tax and property tax and other taxes, um, is that done on a projection basis? And so whatever we're projected to make for 2023, that is our budget for 2023. Or is it, we made this much money in 2022 and we're going to roll that over and spend that money in 2023? Yeah. So, well, one, I'll answer that in two parts. One, any money we have left over from fiscal year 22. So we typically run a surplus. So I I, I don't even know the last time we, we ran a deficit, but Generally, whatever money we bring in, we spend less than that. So that difference goes into our fund balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and our, our unrestricted fund balance right now is we're at the end of fiscal year 21. It was close to $100 million. And that's basically a rainy day fund. So if we have a huge economic crisis or natural disaster or anything like that, we've got that money sitting aside uh, to use mm-hmm. for rainy day. Um so that's where funds roll into at the end of each year if they're not used. For the revenues for the next year, so for fiscal year 23, we will prepare revenue projections uh, that are you know fairly complex projections for some of it. And then some of it is we think it'll go up 1% or 2%. You know? mm-hmm. uh, it just depends. Like property taxes are pretty stable. They're not very – they're not subject to economic conditions very much other than you know when we had the real estate bubble. Right. Uh, if know, there's like a huge 08, like there market-wide yeah. – um, so property taxes though are generally stable. They generally go up two to three percent each year. Two and a half percent is a pretty good, pretty good estimate for that. And that's just to capture, you know, new property that comes online. So there's constantly, you know, houses and commercial buildings being built. Mm-hmm. So there's constantly properties that get added to the tax rolls. Mm-hmm. So that's pretty stable. Sales taxes, you know, they they've continued to increase significantly over the past couple of years. It's you know, we budgeted for um, during COVID for for fiscal year twenty one. We, I mean, it was very conservative on that budget, thinking that we would have some some economic issues, and it was quite the opposite. I mean, mm-hmm. we brought in more sales taxes than ever. You know, when I guess with the federal government giving people money to mm-hmm. spend, and you know, people were not uh, able to go on vacation and do those sorts of things, so they they spent it on stuff. Stay home and spend, yeah. spent it here. Yeah, I, and you know it's interesting. I mean, home, you know, all the home improvement stores had record years, and there's a lot of sales taxes that get paid. You know, if you're if you're buying two thousand dollars worth of stuff at Home Depot, you're paying you know ten percent of that sales right. tax goes into state and city. Um, liquor store sales were at all time high because people weren't going out to restaurants. Instead, mm-hmm. they you know went to to the store to buy stuff. So. We had a, a really significant increase in sales tax collections, and we're continuing to see that now so mm-hmm. far, uh, at least through December of 21. We know inflation's you know becoming real for people, and that will have some impact on consumer spending. So, but I still think sales taxes will likely remain at least flat, you know, compared to last year. And then some of the other things, you know, are even though they're smaller dollar amounts, they're a lot harder to project. So we really kind of dig in and try to determine what is going to happen for things like business licenses or, mm-hmm. you know, other, other smaller taxes or, and fees that we collect. And then one other question on, on these details for the capital projects budget. Uh, you mentioned bonds. Mm-hmm. Where does that bond repayment get filed away? Does that go under the operating budget? Cause yeah. it's kind of a recurring cost or does it stay under the capital? Yeah, budget? that's, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, it, it is an operating budget okay. as a debt service. So within our operating budget, we have a section called general government. And general government uh, is primarily debt service. Um, some of our costs for, um, I mean, we allocate health care costs and pension costs, you know, throughout the departments. But general government houses like our purchasing department, uh, IT department, those things that they're kind of centralized functions. But we also have a, a, our largest chunk is debt service. And that's mm-hmm. just an account within general government. And so we calculate, we know, I mean, we know on a daily basis what our debt service is going to be each month because uh, we have bonds outstanding. I mean, we have, we have several bonds outstanding. Uh, 
I don't have a list with me, but I mean, lots of different bonds that we've issued over the past 10, 15 years. And we refinance those sometimes mm-hmm. to extend them out. Um, but that debt service lives in the operating budget. So we, from a budgetary perspective, we actually fund the debt service first. So, you know, if, if, if we have $300 million coming in and our debt service is say $20 million, that means we only have 280 available, right? right. Debt yep. services first, then we move to all the essential salaries. I mean, that's, it's one of our largest costs is salaries and benefits, mm-hmm. very people driven, uh, organization, all governments are really. Mm-hmm. So that lives there. Um, we just issued bonds, which I, this is interesting. So I just want to mention, we just issued bonds and our combined interest rate was less than 1%. So it's the cheapest we've ever yeah. issued bonds for. Um, I think it was 0.74% was our combined interest wow. cost. So it's, you know, it's almost like getting That's free, almost money, free money. You know? yeah. <laughs> We're, so a huge portion of those monthly payments or annual payments that we're going to be making uh, just goes to the principal. You know, mm-hmm. very little interest that we'll be repaying. I want to move on uh, and talk about kind of the public input process and talk about how citizens can kind of get involved with the, the budget writing process. What, uh, I guess, early on, what is the schedule format and kind of how is that information going to be used to write the budget? Yeah, so we have, well, first thing I'll say is, you know, we, we get public input throughout the year, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we get calls into the mayor's office. Right. Sometimes, you know, I don't want to call them complaints, but people people bring issues to our attention, mm-hmm. right? Um, all throughout the year, we, we get calls to the mayor's office, emails. Uh, we hear from city council members all throughout the year mm-hmm. about what, you know, what they're hearing at their meet community meetings and from their constituents. So I think sometimes people overlook that we constantly are getting public right. input and, you know, the key is, do you use it or not? Right. Do we actually respond to it? So we get that throughout the year, but then we do provide opportunities for people to, you know, very specific opportunities for people to provide input. Uh, this year we're doing three virtual sessions. We originally planned to do those in person. Uh, we had, we had everything lined up at community centers and um, the library, but because the COVID numbers were continue mm-hmm. to be so high, we moved them all to virtual. So they're all uh, through Zoom. You can register for them on our website. Um, if you go to Chattanooga.gov, we have a splash page on the on the front page where you can click to it or go to the finance department. But but you can register for the Zoom sessions. We just had our first one was on January twenty fourth. Uh, you know, we had a decent group. It wasn't. It was about thirty people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we heard about things like slowing down traffic and, you know, just some of it's things you, you expect to hear. And then every now and then you hear things that are just, you know, something you don't expect to hear. Mm-hmm. Like, um, they, they, we got some stuff, some commentary about education, which we're not in education per se, but we can help influence education. So right. we, that was the first session. The next one is on January 31st. So this coming Monday, um, and then the last one's on February 10th. And those are all at 5.30 p.m., all virtual. We also have a survey on our website. So um, I would encourage people to go and, and fill out that survey. I think that's an easy way for people to provide input. Mm-hmm. Um, it's online. You can do it whenever you want. And, right. and so for us, like the challenge for us is to take all that input, everything we get throughout the year, plus what we get from these sessions and the survey, and really incorporate that into preparing a budget. Mm-hmm. And you know, some things that we, some of the input we get are things that we're going to do anyway, right? Um, like, for example, every year, no matter what, you get input about road conditions and potholes, right? Right. And so last year, we, we announced, uh, you know, a plan to do, to spend $40 million over four years to pave roads, which is the largest investment in road paving, um, you know, in the modern era. And that's $10 million a year for four years, and we'll continue that. Mm-hmm. Um we uh, we hired a pothole inspector, you know that. And of course, going back to the campaign, we we got lots of input during the during the campaign. Mayor Kelly heard all kinds of stuff when he was out door knocking and, and going to events, and and we've you know we've captured all that. And we still have that information, but like we hired a pothole inspector, and that mm-hmm. was a direct response to people, you know, saying I'm tired of potholes. And um, it sounds silly to have a pothole inspector, but there's a, a quite quite a bit of people in Chattanooga don't call things in, you know, like there's neighborhoods where we never get through one calls. Right. And for various reasons, maybe, maybe they just don't want to 
talk to the government or, or whatever it is, right? But but potholes in those areas never get repaired because we don't know about them. No one ever calls them in. Um, and we used to years ago. We had someone that proactively, you know, drove around town and and put in work tickets for potholes. Also, another problem is people will call in a pothole and we get there and it's not a pothole. We send a pothole truck out to patch it, but when they get there, it's a road failure. Mm-hmm. So they can't really just patch it. You know, it's right, more a additional bigger work. project. So, so having someone whose job it is to to put work orders in and evaluate these kind of things will, will actually go a long way. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are examples of responding to some of the input we've heard, but that's where we are right now. We've also done a lot of input um, when we did for the police chief search for you know, a couple other things. So I, I think we've got a tremendous amount of input that mm-hmm. we really need to prioritize into the budget. Right. And I don't want to get too far off on this tangent, but I do want to just put a plug in for 311 in general for all of our listeners. Just that is one of the best ways to yes. tell the government what is wrong. Right. You know, there's a sidewalk here that's cracked. I needed to be fixed. There's a pothole here. I needed to be fixed. There's leaf pickup. I needed fixed Mm -hmm. and it's it's all tracked and it's fairly transparent from what i've seen and you know if you can dig into it and see what's being handled and what isn't um so just kind of a sidebar there for all of our listeners download 311 app or go on the website and i do want to ask real quick um this isn't really your department probably but uh how potholes get prioritized and road maintenance in general gets prioritized i know that you know there's a lot of different people complaining Uh, There's a lot of roads. There are some roads that don't actually serve that many people. Um, How does the city determine the priority for what gets resolved when, uh, since there's only so much money to go around? And you don't have to answer that, but if you could kind of point me in the right direction. Sure. No, I mean, I'm happy to to talk to about that. I'm happy to take a stab at it. I've I've been around here long enough in different... um, roles that I think I can probably answer it mostly intelligently. Um, so we there's something called a pavement condition index, mm-hmm. a PCI. And so we have a PCI for every single road in the city of Chattanooga. So the transportation department, they update that regularly. Um, you know, once something, a 100 means it's like a brand new road, right? Anything over a 70 is a really good condition road. Anything between like 20 and 50, or 20 and 70, I mean, or 20 and 60, those are the roads where you got to start making a plan to, to do repairs or replacement or whatever that is. And then anything below 20, you know, it's almost not even worth paving it because the road really needs to be rebuilt mm-hmm. or reconstructed. A lot of those roads that are under 20 are out in neighborhoods. They don't have as many cars, so they've never been prioritized as high. But, you know some neighborhoods i mean that is the one thing that they hate the most because they they use the road right there may be three people that use it but they use it every single day Mm -hmm. um so we're trying to find figure out a way to you know add that into the equation like even though this is not used by a whole lot of people it's been like this for a long long time and it's an underserved neighborhood so maybe we should move it up the list Mm -hmm. but generally pci is the number one indicator number two is is use of the road like you mentioned i mean Roads that are much higher traffic count um, are going to get prioritized over other roads. Uh, one, because they deteriorate faster because right. they have more cars on them. So, um, and you know they just serve the most people. So if we're gonna if we're gonna spend the money on the on paving, we want to make sure that as many people as possible are getting a benefit. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the general way that we look at it. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for indulging me on that. That was yeah. a little bit of a tangent, uh, but I feel like it's important. Like you said, that's one of the things that people. Yeah. expect the most yeah. is do the roads function now now for potholes it's gonna be a different approach like right. we we just want to fill every pothole right. no matter where it is everyone that we know about uh we want to fill it mm-hmm. and we want to get and you know it, sometimes it sounds cliche just keep talking about potholes but i mean potholes really bother people right and so that's that's our goal for potholes is just you know get them all into the system and and fill all of them mm-hmm. and you know, we may fill a pothole tomorrow and, and six months from now it's a pothole again. Right. And that's because there's some other underlying issue that needs to be resolved at some point. But but it's really about, you know, people seeing that if they call this in, 
it gets fixed. Right. And that's important. It, it, it gives people confidence in the government, you know, right. and we can do simple things effectively. Mm-hmm. And that is actually a really great lead in to my next question. Um, talking about just confidence in government. A lot of times, especially for people who don't necessarily have time to go to city council meetings to, you know, read the newspaper every day, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it can seem like these public input processes for the budget or for any other, you know, uh, I'm trying to think of other issues that have gone on. The, there is the COVID response team. There's the police mm-hmm. chief search team, all these public input teams, which seems like a really great way for the government to get out and hear the voice of the people that they're supposed to be serving and take that into account and move forward with that information. Um, sometimes there is the view among a lot of people that Mm -hmm. that's just kind of a way to package up a bunch of answers and use that to steer towards a predetermined outcome. Yeah. Um, how can citizens track this public input process and see how the, the data that's being collected is actually affecting the outcome? You know, what, what kind of transparencies are being put in place to make sure that people can see, you know, I complained about a, so a is being addressed rather than we all complained about A and the city kind of put it mm-hmm. through this big process and put it in a black box and out the other side, they say, okay, what the people really want is B. Right. Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, and, and we are completely committed to not having a predetermined budget. Uh, with that said, though, we do have a pretty large amount of fixed costs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, salaries and benefits. Mm-hmm. We have to spend X dollars on fuel for fire trucks and police cars. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, even though those are variable, they're they're variable fixed. Mm-hmm. So we, we know that there's a lot of things that we just have to, you know, there's a baseline of things we have to pay for. So, and we do have the c- constraints on revenue. You know, if if we could, if we could do everything we wanted to do in the one Chattanooga plan next year, like we would do it, but mm-hmm. it would cost way more money than we have. So we don't want to build a predetermined budget, but, but. A portion of it is predetermined. Just, you know, it has to be because we have a baseline of things we have to cover. Debt service, some salaries and benefits, um, those sorts of things. The input that we get, you know, I, I think the survey results, uh, we're planning on posting those online. The And we're capturing information from these input sessions. And, mm-hmm. you know, we'll put that information out there as well. I think in the budget document, you'll see a section about community input. Like, these are the... Sometimes we try to, even though the, the the things we hear may be not exactly the same, a lot of times they're related. So you can get themes from from all the input. Um, so one theme, just, you know, whether people are talking about paving a road or fixing potholes or slowing down traffic, like, you know, road conditions may be a theme that we that we say we heard about this and these are the things we're doing in the budget. So mm-hmm. we're going to, mm-hmm. we'll have a narrative portion of our budget document that talks about input received and how it's reflected in the budget to try to build that bridge to show. And, and then we may have some things that we heard about that we weren't able to put in the budget this year and, and actually say that you know, right. and be transparent about that. I think that's important. And I think, um, you know, we're, the like three one one information, you know, that's really a, a constant public input process. And we, we've talked internally about ways to make that more transparent and get that out there. You know, we're working on a new 3-1 app. We want to build a new website, um, which is in our, it was in our capital budget for fiscal year 22, mm-hmm. to, to build a new website. I mean, we put a you know significant amount of money in the budget to do that because, you know, they're not cheap to do it right. We want to make sure it's responsive, that it's user-friendly, that it's designed well so that people can find things and, and, you know, really participate. So I think once we have all that stuff uh, rolled out, I think it's going to provide a lot of new opportunity for people to more easily connect with government. And then everything that they tell us about through electronic means, everyone in Chattanooga will be able to see what that is. Mm-hmm. You know, without a, and you can kind of see that now with a lot of the 3-in-1 data. Um, we just want to make it a little more robust and a little easier for people to use and find and if we track, you know, if, if we want to start tracking, I mean, we do track it, but we want people to be able to see, um, you know, I put in this three in one request on this day and it, you know, it took us three days to do it or it took us 130 days right. to do it. Right. Um, but you can see, you know, 
how, how long it takes us. And, and we're going to be more intentional about measuring that and trying to make sure that those, you know, however long it takes us to get to these work orders is as short as possible. Right. So maybe that, I don't know if, I might have went on a tangent. There, <laughs> no, that was, that was good. Um, one thing I, I do want to dig in just a little bit further there. And you talked in the beginning about how some of these costs are quasi-fixed. Mm-hmm. Uh, different salaries, different departments have certain operating costs. Um, I feel like with with government, there can be the tendency to, to get stuck in a status quo, mm-hmm. to say, like, this budget is this size and we have this many people, and so that's what we need to right. continue to fund. Right. And maybe the budget process isn't the right avenue for this kind of questioning, but is there, maybe it is, uh, you know, is this part of the budget process to say, is this department right sized? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, is there definitely. room to shrink it? Is there room to, to find some new avenues to get funds or some new avenues? Maybe, you know, maybe it needs to be shrunk. Yes, definitely. Um, so with, and, Back to priority-based budgeting process. So typically governments, most governments in the United States, well, in the world really, but most governments use incremental budgeting. Um, There's lots and lots of cities in the U.S. that don't use that process. They use priority-based budgeting Mm -hmm. or budgeting for outcomes or performance-based budgeting, you know, different variations. But but if a vast majority of states, counties, and cities use incremental budgeting. That's last year's budget plus one or 2%, right? And so there may be line items in the budget that have been, you know, around $5,000 for 50 years. Right. And they may have only spent $10 out of that line item, right? So that is the downfall of, of incremental budgeting is just that status quo. Like, this is our budget. It must have to grow, right? And we're not really digging through and making sure that you're realigning things to where they need to be. I mean, because things are different now than they were 20 years ago or 50 years ago. So with priority-based budgeting, some of the principles that we um, talk about and that we, I mean, we talk about these things in our meetings with department administrators. I've been meeting with department heads all week this week to talk about where they are in the budget process, do they have questions, and really to push some of the the PBB principles. So um, some of the principles are, you know, to prioritize services, um, invest in those priorities, question past spending patterns like that's actually listed as a principle of priority-based budgeting mm-hmm. and by the way priority-based budgeting is a it's a government finance officer officer association best practice so there's a lot of literature around it and examples and those sorts of things which is always helpful mm-hmm. um, but questioning past spending patterns is a big part of it and what we're asking departments to do is like is to really look at your budget determine where you can move money, you know, mm-hmm. because it's not that we want to spend less money. I mean, people pay these taxes, they expect to get a return on their, on their investment. So it's not about spending less. It's about reprioritizing and reallocating. So if a department goes to their budget and I mean, if you can find 10 line items where you can shrink that line item by a thousand dollars, then you've got $10,000 to spend on something new. Mm-hmm. And it could be something innovative to provide better service. It could be, uh, to do a very to, to a specific response to the one Chattanooga plan, uh, it could be lots of things. And you know, whether it's ten thousand dollars or fifty thousand dollars, it's new money to do something new instead of just sitting in a line item that never gets spent, right. and then it rolls into the fund balance. Right? right. So we're really pushing departments this year to to really think about that. And uh, you know, so far we've had a really good response. I think people are excited about. Um, really being able to think outside the box a little bit. Mm-hmm. The mayor always pushes um, public entrepreneurship. Uh, the, the Possibility of Why is a book by Mitch Weiss that we all read. Every, he had every department head read it. We talked about it and had discussions, but it's really about applying some of the, you know, some entrepreneurship principles to the public sector. Like it's okay to have crazy ideas. We don't now. We're not going to waste money on it, right? I mean, mm-hmm. this is taxpayer dollars, so it's a little different. You can't just right. throw money at things, but we can do, you know, uh, proof of concept. We can do all kinds of things before we spend a bunch of money. Um, and those are the types of things that we're really trying to push throughout the organization, change the culture a little bit. So, 
talking about all these different departments and and how their budgets are written um one thing that this kind of surprised me when i started kind of pulling back the curtain to see how the budget gets written but each department and also several non-government entities write requests is that correct can you walk us through that process and how those requests are written and what sort of information they have to provide and also just you know what are the guidelines for who can even make a request like what Mm -hmm. what is the kind of bare minimum to say i'm an organization that can request city budget money right so all of our departments you know the, the standard basic departments um public works police fire planning um finance, human resources, IT, they all have to submit a departmental request, a general budget request. Mm-hmm. And and within that request, in prior years, when they used budgeting for outcomes, they had to uh, submit everything as, as an offer. It was an offer of services in a um, very specific format, which is great. I mean, it, and BFO, by the way, is a, a version of priority-based budgeting. Mm-hmm. It, it's a lot of the same principles, just you know, a little bit different format and approach. But... Um, we're trying to simplify it a little bit. Um, and so departments have to give us like what we're saying is we want you to tell us what, what is your basic minimum services? Like fire department operations cost this much money, you know, instead of breaking up into smaller, like we still break it up behind the scenes in the accounting system for Mm -hmm. tracking and everything. But from a, a public, you know, view of the budget, like the fire department operations cost this much money. Um, and it includes this. There's 20 fire stations. There's 440 firefighters. There's operating expenses. They have to submit that kind of information. So they have to put stuff in our in our system, our Oracle system, on a much more detailed basis. We have fiscal managers in all the departments that do this. And then uh, they have to provide the higher-level executive summary that talks about their basic minimum services. We also make them submit performance measures, and these are key performance indicators that they use you know, almost on a daily basis. Like, what do you look at every day or at least every week to make sure your department's operating uh, the way it should be? And then the other thing we've asked them to do this year is to do an equity analysis for their department. And we haven't really defined what that means yet. We, we're in the process of standing up a full department of equity and community engagement, but we don't quite yet have a, a chief equity officer on board. But we are asking departments to at least think about it, like, you have an approach to equity, whether it's internal diversity or, you know, making sure that the services we provide are equitable, whatever that may be. So those are the key components of the budget uh, that they, the budget request that they have to submit. We're also allowing, or not allowing, we're, we're asking departments, if they have a priority specific request, like it is direct response to one Chattanooga, high priority, great idea, something new. Um, that's not part of your normal budget. We have a separate request process for that, so it can it can either be a priority aligned to the to the one Chattanooga strategy, or it could be an innovation. So, mm-hmm. you know, a new way to do something in government, and, and it could it might only be ten thousand dollars that they're putting on top of something that's already in their operating budget. You know, it may be something that costs us normally two hundred fifty thousand a year, but if we only spent ten thousand dollars more, we can make it so much better for the for the residents. So. Mm-hmm. We have those opportunities as well. And then capital is a separate request. So all the departments have to do all three of those. So that's that group. Mm-hmm. We also have quasi-governmental agencies like CARTA. Mm-hmm. Uh, Regional planning agency is one of those. Um, the library it, it operates mostly like a department, even though they have a separate board. Mm-hmm. But it's more like a department than it is a CARTA. CARTA is much more of an authority or an agency. They all submit request to us as well. Very similar. I mean, we make them submit, you know, what their total request is, performance measures, those mm-hmm. sorts of things. And then the, the last group is the is nonprofits. So the only non-government entities that can get funding um, are nonprofits. They mm-hmm. have to be recognized by the IRS as a nonprofit. They have to prove that they, they have 501c3 status. Um, and it can be any size of nonprofit. But they can essentially request anything they want. Um, and they have to provide us quite a bit of information, which we can get into those details if you want. But, but there's a process. It's similar to the departments, but but they have to actually provide even more information because right. we're appropriating money to them, and 
the way that works, and there's a state law and, and city ordinance that ties to the state law that says what we do with nonprofits, and it's essentially we give them the money and they they go with it, right? I mean, we can ask them for reports and all kinds of things, but once we appropriate it and cut the check, it's theirs, right? Um, so one thing that I noticed on that, I was watching the budget kickoff meeting video that was posted a while back, um, is that there's a new requirement for agencies to have a plan to become sustainable without local government funding. Do I have that right? And I'm understanding that correctly. So these nonprofit groups that are asking for city funds have to include in that request, how can we continue to operate without this request in the future? Um, tell me more about that and why that requirement was introduced and kind of what the hope for timeline is on that in terms of getting these nonprofits independent. Yeah. It's interesting because this was actually a requirement um, before the previous administration. Mm-hmm. So they had this as one of the, it, it was part of the, the request process previous to the prior administration. So, we're actually bringing it back, and then some. We have some council members that asked us about that, wanted to bring it back, but I also think it's just really good for us to, to do that. You know, I we want to make like we're not a philanthropic organization. You know, we, we want to be a good partner, and sometimes it makes sense to have non government entities to provide services, like right. it, for lots of reasons. Um, but you know, we want those agencies to to be able to grow and continue to be successful and serve the community without relying on taxpayer money. Uh, and most nonprofits can get on some path to get, get there, whether mm-hmm. it's, you know, seeking other private sources or, you know, their donations or their fundraising plans, whatever that is. <coughs> excuse, <coughs> excuse me. But, um, you know, nonprofits have to submit financial statements, audits, uh, lists of salaries and positions, five years worth of major funding sources, they have to tell us what their other governmental funding sources are. Like, well, they have to give us quite a bit of information. Right. But then we want them to actually give us a narrative format that says, all right, you know, right now, for example, they could say, for the past three years, I've gotten 100000 a year from the city of Chattanooga for X. Over the next three years, you know, we can step that down to 80000 70000 60000 And I'm going to replace that revenue with fundraising or, you know, whatever it the other source may be, but mm-hmm. try to create some sort of path to being successful and continue to serve the community without city funds. Um, there are some nonprofits though, that, that will never do that. Like they're in, they're not going to give us a, I guess a, they're not going to be able to provide us with a path forward without city funding. So a good example of that would be one of the nonprofit organizations that, provides Head Start classrooms. Mm-hmm. That's really an expansion of the city. So we have all the city-run Head Start classrooms, and then we send a portion of our federal money to up to nonprofits that provide additional classrooms. And that's not really, um, like, they don't need to be, you know, their, their path forward without city money is they just wouldn't have classrooms. And we don't want to do that. Mm-hmm. Like, we, we are intentionally expanding our services through the nonprofit community in that way. So that... You know, those are treated a little bit differently, right. but but we want every nonprofit, uh, other than those types, to really think about like how they can be successful without city funding. It's not going to be punitive. I mean, uh, you know, but we at least want to see what that might look like. Right. And generally, we've like last year we decreased the amount of money we appropriated to nonprofits because uh, some of, we felt like some of it was, was duplicative. We found, we felt like some of it was just nonprofits getting the same amount of money every year, no matter what. And we really wanted to be, you know, strategically aligned with what we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. So I I understand like why some of these groups would be receiving funding in a case where it is, like you said, with the Head Start program an expansion kind of on what the city Mm -hmm. is already doing, or if it's kind of plugging a gap that the city doesn't. Right have a program for um so i want to talk about both those aspects for something like the head start program where it's an expansion upon a city program what is the reason that that's being operated through a nonprofit rather than just bringing that money back in and expanding the number of classrooms that the city is funding directly so like the primary reason is because we do have nonprofits that are already in the early childhood education space mm-hmm. and they already have facilities, right? So 
for us, we would have to build some more facilities. Right. We don't have. I mean, we, we're using all the space we have for right. that that meet the standards of a of a Head Start classroom. So, I think it's a better return uh, to send that money out to qualified right. nonprofits that already operate in that space. Right, you're capitalizing so on their capitalizing expertise on their, and resources. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, like the um, Chambliss Center for Children is a great example. Mm-hmm. I mean, they've been in the early childhood business for 100 years, and they, right. they're really good at it. They're well-known nationally, and they already have you know physical space mm-hmm. to do this. So that's a, a good example. Um, and then on the other side, you mentioned like filling gaps, like um, – you know, we, we provide funding uh, to a nonprofit to run a rape crisis center. If we didn't give them the money, we would have to do it ourselves. Like, mm-hmm. that's something that we have to have. Um, and they already do it. They've been doing it for years. And it makes sense for us to do that in that way. Um, some others are, are more contract-driven. Um, like, 2-1-1 services, are, for example, are run by United Way. Mm-hmm. Um if, if people couldn't call 211 and get somebody on the phone at United Way, we would have to do that ourselves. Mm-hmm. And and that's totally different than 311, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's not, 211 is connecting people to services, having those relationships. So it makes sense for something like that to be at an outside organization. Mm-hmm. So that's really our goal, though, is to get down to all right, what is an expansion that is aligned with our priorities? What's filling gaps? Otherwise, we don't need to be in that that arena. You right. know, it's we we need to be spending these funds on on things that impact taxpayers the most. Right. So you're, I guess, constantly making that decision of whether or not this would be something that'd be better off under a city umbrella, mm-hmm. or if it's better to kind of take advantage of their existing framework. And you know, is this organization doing a good job with this money? Right. Are they doing better than we could do with this money just because they have those yeah. relationships and resources built up? Definitely. Okay. And this year we're implementing, we are implementing something brand new. And that is uh, we're going to require uh, all nonprofits that receive over a certain amount of money. I, we haven't exactly defined what that is yet, but let's say it's $300,000. Mm-hmm. Um, any nonprofit that gets more than that is going to be required to go through program evaluation. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll have a program evaluator who's a city employee that goes through a full program evaluation process right. for that nonprofit on-site visits, reviews, you know, those sorts of things. And that's new. We haven't done that before, but we feel like that will really help us get a better understanding of whether or not we, it's a good investment or if we need to rethink it. Mm-hmm. Well, cool. That is uh, all the questions that I have, I guess, if you want to talk about kind of the timeline, uh, yeah. you know, what is, the public input process, we covered that. When is a draft budget going to be available and kind of what is the process to approval from today onward? Yeah, so we finished public input like middle of February. Um, departments have to have their initial request in by February 18th. Mm-hmm. So that's the day that everyone has to at least have their first draft in. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some departments, that'll be their final. You know, For others, there'll be tweaks here and there. Like, for example... Um, you know, we we won't have a um, we have a new sorry just hit the microphone we have a new uh, parks and outdoors uh, administrator who mm-hmm. starts next week I believe you know he will not have an opportunity to really be in the budget process that much for his department so we'll take time to to review that with him after it gets submitted mm-hmm. and we'll probably make some tweaks based on you know his experience and and preferences and different things and we'll do that for several departments but overall. Uh, by the end of February, we'll we'll know like what our gap is, and when I say gap, I mean this is how much money was requested. This right. is how many how much we have in revenue, or right. we project in revenue. So you know we can't fund everything, um, and we'll start going through that process to cut budget requests to get to a balance a draft balance budget. Um, we're going to meet with uh, city council members individually, like the committee chairs. Um, so, for example, um, Councilman Bird is public safety chair. He'll meet with myself and, and, and the police chief to go through the police budget, myself and the fire chief to go through the fire budget. And, and each one of the council members will have that opportunity. That way they kind of get some education about their specific, the departments that roll up into their specific committees. 
Um, and that's something new this year that, that Councilwoman Burrs suggested. I think mm-hmm. it's a fantastic idea because it really lets the council members get more educated about, you know, the things that they are responsible for as committee chairs. And then they can help educate the other council members as well. So we'll do that around um, beginning of April. March is really the full month of March is really that month where we do the back and forth and the tweaking. Um, and then uh, our plan is to have a balanced budget with no changes by April 18th. Um, that always gets pushed out <laughs> a little bit, but that's why we set it that way. Uh, and then we present the budget to city council on May 3rd. So that is pretty much set in stone. Mm-hmm. On May 3rd, we will do the public release. Uh, everything will be on our online. We'll present city council. Then they will hold uh, budget education sessions all the way through Memorial Day. Mm-hmm. And the plan is for city council to vote on the budget on June 7th for the first time and final reading on June 14th. And that gives us a couple weeks cushion in case anything happens. Uh, you know, They don't have to approve it until June 28th at the latest. Right. Uh, to start on on July 1st. Right. Well, cool. Well, thank you very much for your time. Is there anything else? No, the only other thing I'll, I'll mention just cause I think it's worth mentioning is, uh, you know, this is the budget process for our normal budgeted revenues and expenditures. We have a whole separate process for all of our, uh, American rescue plan dollars. So okay. the, the $38 million that we received from the federal government, we've, we've received half of it so far in cash. We get the other half in May of 22, but, uh, that's $38 million that will be invested into the community in various ways. We don't know what that is yet because we're mm-hmm. going through an entire uh, process through the Chattanooga Equitable Recovery Commission, which Mayor Kelly announced uh, a couple of days ago. And they'll have an entire separate process for getting you know community input, building a framework, and rec- making recommendations to the mayor. And mm-hmm. then we'll have a separate spending plan for that money. Uh, totally separate from the regular budget process. Mm-hmm. Great. I'll look forward to that as well. Yeah. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Chattanooga Civics. Our music was written and recorded by Kevin McLeod. If you have any questions or feedback, please send me an email at chattanoogacivics at gmail.com. You can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at chatcivics, or visit the website chattanoogacivics.com. Thanks for listening. Proud member of the Podnuga Network.